Well, please do um, grab a Bible and uh, open it to page uh, 774, and um, I'll be reading um, the first chapter of the book of Jonah as Rog uh, begins our series in that book tonight. That is page 774. Chapter 1 of the book of Jonah, 1 to 16. And then uh, we're going to read a little bit of Mark's gospel, Mark 4, um, 35 to 41, which is on page 839. So if you can keep a a body part in that, we'll um, come back to that in a minute. Jonah 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying... Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, so that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? And where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew. And I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you, for I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Mark 4, 35, page 839. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him, and a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he, was he that is Jesus, was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? 
And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Thank you, Sam, for reading, and let me add my welcome to you this evening at Chalmers Church. It's good to have you with us, and I really hope that you'll stay with us for four more Sunday evenings, or three more after this one, at the very least, because Jonah is a story that builds to chapter four, and each step on the way is important. So I really hope that this will be a, a series you kind of block into your diaries, or if uh, you can't make a week, um, catch up online, because uh, each week is important, and really, until we get to the end, we won't get the point fully. Let me lead us in prayer before we turn to God's word. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your word. Thank you that it is a light. And we pray tonight you would open our eyes, soften our hearts, open our ears, and help us to hear your voice and respond rightly to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Let me start with a question, which is this question. It's an important one. Do you fear God? Do you fear God? I guess one or two of us might not be Christians here and would come back with, well, how am I going to fear God if I'm not sure he's there? Or maybe come back with, which God? Which God? There are all sorts of options on offer in the religious supermarket, so how do I know which one I'm supposed to take seriously? But I wonder, even those of us who are Christians, whether we would ask the question, am I supposed to fear God? Is that something Christians are supposed to do? To fear God? Well, by the end of tonight, I hope we will actually have a reason to fear God. Wherever we start, whether we start tonight as as not a Christian or a Christian, I hope we'll see in Jonah chapter 1 a reason to fear God that's every bit as true today as it was back then. And I think it is something more than just respect. Sometimes as Christians we say, well, I don't fear God, but I do respect him. Actually, I think it's appropriate that we do more than just respect our God. But before we get to that, I need to give us a bit of a warm-up to Jonah. Um, You'll see on the back of your service sheet, there's a box with a few uh, questions in about Jonah as a book. Um, This is one of those books in the Bible that's uh, kind of famous enough, especially in children's storybooks, famous enough that lots of kind of accumulated nonsense has has kind of built up onto it. Um, So let me just tackle a few kind of misconceptions um, before we get into chapter one and fearing God. So here are four brief questions to introduce us to Jonah. Firstly, um, who was Jonah written by? Now, I think the popular misconception can be that Jonah must have been written by a bit of a fool. I did have maybe Jonah was written by an idiot, but I thought that sounded a bit rude. But, But I think our culture would read a book like this in the Bible and say, well, there you go. I mean, religious people are just just, um, gullible, superstitious. I mean, waves that can be turned on and off supernaturally by remote control. A fish that can swallow someone and they survive for three days. I mean, this is just nonsense, isn't it? Because now we know, with the advances of science, that those sorts of things don't normally happen. 
But I want to say, before we write the author of Jonah off as a kind of naive, gullible fool, um, this book actually is an extraordinary work of literature. I've been studying Jonah off and on um, for eight years, actually, um, kind of seriously, and uh, even this week something surprised me in the book. It's an extraordinary story. The more you read it, the more you see. It is the most amazing work of literature just in itself. So the author's definitely no fool. We don't actually know if Jonah himself wrote it or someone else wrote up um, Jonah's experience. We don't know that. But what we do know is this author is no fool. And of course, we also know from Jesus that the Old Testament is God's word, the Holy Spirit co-writing, inspiring this story to prepare the way for Jesus, the Son. So it's an extraordinary story full of powerful truth. Secondly, who was it written for? Well, you might have begun to gather this already. I think the primary audience was not children. So it's a good thing to preach on a Sunday evening, not just study in Sunday club. And as we look at the themes of this book, we're going to discover that it's actually not light entertainment, the cartoon books. It's actually a grown-up polemic. It's written for adults like us to challenge us about the way we think about ourselves, the way we think about our city, our neighbours, friends, colleagues around us, and most of all, to challenge our view of God, to challenge our attitude to God. Which means, thirdly, and perhaps most categorically out of all of these questions, Jonah is not about the fish. Hopefully lots of us would know that. Um, but uh, the book is about two characters. One of them is Jonah, but the other one is not the whale. In fact, just to prove that, how many verses do you think are actually about the fish? Three. I used to think it was two. There are actually three. Three verses about the fish. And actually, it doesn't even say it's a whale. So it's definitely not about a whale. Um, three verses, 117, 2.1 and 2.10 are about the fish. But actually, the two key characters are Jonah and his God. We're introduced to those two characters um, straight away uh, on verse 1. Just look at verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. And then all the way through the book, um, they're kind of on stage, these characters. And the book ends with a conversation, a one-on-one again, between Jonah and the Lord. And do keep your Bibles open on page 774 if you've closed them, uh, like my Bible up here has. Um, So two characters I want us to be thinking about, Jonah and the Lord. And I want to say both those characters are important. Uh, If we've had some um, kind of training in how to read the Old Testament and what to look for when we're reading an Old Testament story, we might have been told that we should always look at God in the story. He's always the main character. And I want to say, up to a point, that is a very helpful thing to hear. Because we all have the... um, Well, have you done this? You look at a group photo that you're in, a kind of a yearbook photo or whatever, or a group photo at some event you're at, and who do you look for first? <laughs> well, it's, always, it's always me, isn't it? I wonder where I am, I wonder what I look like, I wonder if my hair's in the right place, whatever it is. Um, we look for ourselves in the picture, that, that's, a, that's a, a kind of tendency we all have. And so when we come to the Old Testament uh, story like this, we think, oh, where am I in the picture? Now against that tendency, it's absolutely right to say, no, steady on, the Bible's far more about God than it is about us. So focus on him first. That's entirely true. But sometimes human characters are put in the story 
to challenge us, to get us thinking. And in this book, it's Jonah's attitude to God, which is the big issue. Jonah's reaction and response to the real God, that's what's supposed to challenge us. And it challenges us because Jonah behaves so strangely in this book. He's one of God's people. He's, in fact, one of God's prophets, like one of the chosen spokespeople. Um, but he just behaves very strangely. I wonder if you noticed that as the, as the um, passage began to uh, be read. Let me just read from chapter 1. So we're on page 774. Chapter 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Now, so far, that's so normal. I mean, it just sounds like the start of lots of Old Testament kind of prophetic oracles, stories. But then verse 3, there is a real shock. It all starts to go horribly wrong. Verse 3, Jonah rose. So far, so good. He was told to arise, verse 2. Jonah rose to flee. Hmm? He rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. He paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Spot the repetition there. I mean, we're supposed to notice he is heading in the wrong direction. I mean, we all know that, don't we? Nineveh is east, Tarshish is west. God says go left, Jonah goes right. God says go up, But verse 3 makes a big deal of him going down. He went down to Tarshish, down into the boat. And actually he'll be going down until he ends up in the fish. There's a massive clash of wills going on at the start of this book. What Jonah wants and what God wants do not align. And so those first three verses set up an introduction Um, that asks this final big question of the book, why is Jonah running? Why is Jonah running? We all know it's the story of Jonah who runs away and ends up in a whale, but why was he running? I think the children's storybooks often say because he was naughty. Should have done what he was told. I think I sometimes think maybe he was was, um, scared. He didn't want to go on a kind of mission to to a big scary nation like Nineveh. But actually... um, well, that may be true of me sometimes in conversations with people around Edinburgh. Actually, that's not Jonah's problem at all. It's not that he thought the mission would fail if he went. We'll find out later. He actually was worried it would succeed. That's the book's ongoing question. Why is Jonah running? But the author sets up that massive question, why is he running away, and then just leaves it. That's why I say I'd really like you to come for the next three weeks, because we won't know the full answer until chapter four. You're welcome to read ahead if you want to. Um, I won't give you spoilers right now. Chapter four is where God um, sits Jonah down for a proper talking to. But actually, in chapter one, there's a much simpler question than why is Jonah running? The chapter one question is much simpler than that. It's just, is it going to work? Can you actually get away with it? Can you have a different agenda to the God of the Bible and win? Can Jonah resist God's will? Can he rebel and get away with it? And the basic answer, as we will have heard in the reading, is no. So God sends a storm on his disobedient prophet. He nearly sinks the ship he's on. And obviously, before the chapter is done, 
Jonah's bid for Tarshish becomes a soggy failure. He just can't take on God and win, Jonah found out. And we're not prophets like Jonah. We weren't, we're not being specifically commissioned to go to Nineveh. Um, but actually that lesson is as true today as it was then. The day that Jonah wasted his money buying a ticket to Tarshish was the day he found out you can't take on the Creator and win. Ultimately, you can't resist his will. He, he will have his way in the end. So we're going to see three points as we work through the story in more detail. and They're on the service sheet if you want to see them. There are three points. There's only one real God, the Creator. That's point one. There's only one real God, the Creator. Point two is he's unstoppably powerful. And so point three, it's right to fear him. So firstly, there's only one real God, the Creator. Now I'm aware that's a controversial thing to say in 21st century Edinburgh, especially when you point out the necessary implication. If there's one real God, the creator of all, well then there must be a lot of false gods, a lot of things, or people who who claim to worship a God that's not actually real. If the one God of the Bible is true, then Allah is false. If the one God of the Bible is true, then there can't be lots of gods or no gods. It's a controversial thing to say. It's actually quite an unusual thing to hear said in Britain at the moment. But it would have been a strange thing to say that on Jonah's boat as well. Did you notice that, verse 5? Verse 5, the, the, the mighty tempest starts to, um, to come on the boat. The, the boat's threatening to break up. And then just look at the kind of multicultural nature of this boat. Then the mariners were afraid... And each cried out to his own God. There was a real range of, range of religions on this boat. It was every man to his prayer mat in a, in a crisis. And the captain seems to have a kind of more the merrier approach. The, the captain's kind of, let's hedge our bets and get everyone praying to every possible God there is. So verse 6, the captain comes and finds Jonah and says to him, what do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give thought to us that we may not perish. There were lots of prayers being said on the boat, playing a kind of religion roulette. But actually, the author has already told us exactly who is behind the storm. Verse 4, the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. That Lord in capital letters, it's the personal name for God, Yahweh, the God of the Bible, the God of Israel. There's just one God actually behind the storm, even though everyone's caught up in it, everyone's praying left, right and centre, but there's one God who commands these waves. And a few verses later in verse 9, we find out why Yahweh is the one, the only one, who can actually help. Verse 9, there's this great interrogation of Jonah, no doubt a panicked one. Verse 9, Jonah said to them, when they asked for answers about who he is, Jonah said to them, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord." the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. If you remember one verse from today, that's the verse to remember. It sits right at the centre of this passage. I am a Hebrew, I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Of all the gods believed on in that boat, only one of them actually made the sea. 
Who's in charge of the land? Is it the land god? No, it's Yahweh, the god of the Bible. Who's in charge of the sea? Is it some kind of sea god? No, it's Yahweh, the god of the Bible. I mean, it doesn't leave much out, does it, verse 9? The god of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. That's the whole picture. That's all of creation. God of all, the sky, the sea, Arthur's seat, the firth of forth, and all the people who are on top of them. The city of Edinburgh, the real God, made everything. And I just love, in verse 10, the reaction of the sailors. Just look at it. The verse 10, the men were exceedingly afraid and said to Jonah, what is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord, Yahweh, because he had told them. Getting this information, the sailors are terrified and you can't fault their logic. Just think about it for a moment. Jonah is running away by boat from the God who made the seas. <laughs> can, can you see the irony in that? I mean, Jonah, are you seriously telling us that you're, you're knowingly disobeying the creator of the universe and your, your tactic from getting away from him is to, is to go on the seas, the seas which he made? I mean, how stupid are you? What, what exactly did you hope to achieve? And why did you choose our boat? The men are terrified because they've just heard there's actually only one real God, and they've just discovered they're floating on his sea. And I think actually a right fear is entirely appropriate. I said there's a reason in this passage why we should still be uh, have fear of God today. And the reality is, this is still his world that we're living on, sitting on. We sit on his turf. And he's as alive today as he was here. So if you're someone who's not right with him, we heard about Sergei, that growing sense of, I'm not actually right before my maker. But it would be entirely appropriate to be scared. Just as these sailors were. Maybe you think, hang on, hang on, reacting with fear, that sounds a bit over the top because surely we're not actually saying this happened, are we? Like, surely this is just like a fable or an allegorical tale. Look, if I'm going to write off every other religion in the world and kind of just plump for this God... Well, I'm going to need more evidence than just kind of one ancient account of a Mediterranean storm. But if evidence is the issue for you, well, let me point you to another storm. That's why I had Mark 4 read. We won't turn to it now, but in Mark 4, um, we find out that this one real God didn't just stay behind the stars, kind of invisible, unknowable, but actually stepped into his world, stepped into a boat, funnily enough, and, and amongst lots of impossible things that Jesus did, things we're seeing every morning um, in our series in John, well, one of the extraordinary things Jesus did was to stop a storm. The way Mark tells the story, I think, is supposed to make us think back to Jonah, actually. And so it's another day where um, there's a group of experienced professional um, sailors, fishermen in this case, um, and they saw before their eyes Jesus Christ deploy the power that only the Creator has. 
There were multiple witnesses. Most of them died for their testimony. They say they saw him calm the waves with a word. And it is written, just just like Jonah, it's it's supposed to make us think of this. So just like Jonah, Jesus was sleeping in the boat while the thing threatened to break up. Um, Just like Jonah, the, the sailors, the professionals, go to him and say, wake up, like, we're about to die. Can you not see the boat is going down? But not like Jonah, when Jesus stands up, he doesn't just say, I know the God behind all this. Well, he shows that he is the God of the seas as Jesus Christ stands up and tells the waves to pipe down. It's an extraordinary thing. And I think if we'd seen that firsthand, fear would have been an appropriate reaction. Yes, we're to trust Jesus, and Mark makes that point, but actually, when you see the power he actually has, the unstoppable creator the creator of all. Fear is an appropriate reaction. So that's point one. Back to Jonah. There's only one real God, the creator. Um, interestingly, even though the, the um, sailors kind of get that this is a, this is a big thing and they're scared of this God, um, they do actually try and come up with their own alternative plan. Just have a look. Um, uh, they, ask, they ask Jonah, verse 11, what can we do to kind of calm this situation down? Jonah says, pick me up and hurl me into the sea, then the sea will quiet down. But these sailors, they do not fancy kind of ruling their passenger safety record. They, they don't want to throw Jonah into the sea. And so they say, well, a bit like Jonah, we'll come up with an alternative plan. And so begins a kind of arm wrestle between the crew's muscles and God himself. Look at verse 13. Verse 13. Nevertheless, the men rode hard, to get back to dry land. But they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Our second point is the real God is unstoppably powerful. If God, the creator of all, decides that a boat will founder, that boat will founder. It's actually the second tug of war in the passage. So if you look back to verse 4, In verse 4, God hurls a great wind upon the sea to break up this boat. And in response, these are are trained sailors, they think, okay, well, let's take drastic action. And verse 5, sorry, um, uh, yeah, the end of verse 5, the mariners were afraid, they cried out to their God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. So God hurls the wind, they hurl the cargo. I mean, you've got to be pretty desperate if you're a a professional sailor, and you get rid of all your cargo. But it doesn't work. They hurl the cargo. They row the oars. But you can't actually stop the creator once he's decided. And they make that point, verse 14. Just look at where they end up, verse 14. Therefore they cried out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. That final phrase is exactly the second point. You've done as it pleased you. That's precisely it. The one real God does what he pleases. He's unstoppably powerful. Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh. No, 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 I'm going over there. Jonah, you're going to Nineveh. Unstoppably powerful. 
sailors, until you throw that prophet off your boat, you cannot beat this storm. doesn't matter how much cargo you hurl or how many oars you row, the sea grows more and more tempestuous. God is unstoppably powerful. I had wondered about getting pictures of the sea in storm. You know, I don't know if you saw Perfect Storm, um, the film. It's quite old now, so I think I can spoil it. Um, they don't get away. I, like, there's big waves, fishermen. I just assumed, because it was a film in Hollywood, that um, at some point they beat the sea. They didn't. The sea won. When you see pictures of tsunamis or even just floodwaters around the UK when it's serious, it's extraordinary power. Way beyond us, the Creator is unstoppably powerful. But I think I can imagine a, an objection that comes back to that, which is, hang on, if, if God's so unstoppably powerful, well, how come today people do things that he doesn't want all the time and they get away with it all the time? I mean, we hear headlines, don't we? Far worse than just Jonah, a prophet going AWOL. Surely if the creator God is there and he's this powerful, surely he would do something about it. I mean, I woke up this morning and looked at the headlines on my phone and heard of a family of suicide bombers bombing three churches in Indonesia. That's people killing God's children. And he's not doing anything, it seems. seems like we don't see God stepping in and stopping this kind of willful rebellion. So is he still really there? Is God still really doing as he pleases, verse 14? Well, let me say two things to that. Firstly, I think it's worth saying, even in Bible times, God didn't step in with a kind of miraculous storm every time someone disobeyed him. And usually he does actually leave us to reap the consequences of our behavior, both consequences here and now, and a perfect righteous judgment in the end. So even in Jonah's day, not every, uh, every act of disobedience would get quite this treatment. It's only when God wants to make a massive object lesson that he steps in with this kind of miraculous um, intervention. But actually, secondly, in terms of today, God has explained to us precisely why he's not stepping in to punish every wrong deed. And the answer is, quite simply, patience. Let me read from 2 Peter. who says, God is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. So the Bible teaches, the New Testament teaches, that a storm will actually certainly come. There is going to come a terrifying day of judgment. People will be held accountable for everything they do. And when Jesus does return to judge the world, it's going to be far more terrifying than Jonah chapter 1. But God is patient, patiently holding back his wrath. He's giving us time to find forgiveness. So grace is the answer. God's patient, undeserved kindness. And as we're going to go on in Jonah, we're going to see that that grace, that kindness of God, is, is right at the heart of who he is. But before we get on to grace from chapter 2 onwards, the very first thing the book of Jonah wants us to know is God's sovereign muscle. Before you get to his sovereign grace, 
we need to realize that God is unstoppably powerful. He is someone to fear because he's the creator of all. So then, point three, how should we respond to the one real God, the creator of all, who is unstoppably powerful? Well, I wonder if you noticed the repeated refrain that comes through the passage again and again. Uh, there's, there's one word that keeps popping up to describe how characters are feeling, and the word is fear. So let's just follow through with the sailors. Um, verse 5. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. So they start by being afraid of this storm and perishing in it. Then verse 10, they hear about the one real God from Jonah, and in verse 10, they were exceedingly afraid. They're more afraid that they're actually sitting on a sea that the Creator made. Then verse 16, when the sea instantly calms, having chucked Jonah overboard, then the men feared the Lord exceedingly. They offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. The story of the sailors in chapter 1 is, is of ever-increasing fear alongside ever-increasing safety. Strange thing, isn't it? They start with a ship breaking up, scared of the waves. Then they realise there's a god who sits behind the waves who they're not right with, and they've got a rebel in their boat. But actually, it's when the seas cease and they see the power of God. It's one thing hearing God's power, but seeing it in front of them. Then they feared the Lord exceedingly. And it seems like they respond rightly to him at that point, offering a sacrifice and making vows. The same, exactly the same is true with Mark's Gospel, Mark 4, and uh, the disciples with Jesus in the boat. They were scared of the storm. Uh, they were scared they were going to perish. They wake up Jesus. Jesus stands up, rebukes them, then rebukes the waves. And by the end, they're more scared of who is this man? Who is this that the wind and seas obey him? It's an entirely appropriate reaction to fear the creator of the universe and his unstoppable power. And I think that's what the author wants us to be doing in this chapter because of how it contrasts with what Jonah says. Just look at verse 9. Verse 9. Jonah says, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Jonah says, I fear the Lord. To which I think we might say, well, really, Jonah? Really? Really? You fear God. I thought you were ignoring God. I thought you were deciding you know better. I thought you thought you could outrun him or at least wanted to give it a go. Do you really treat him with the kind of awe-filled reverence that a creator deserves? I mean, to be honest, the pagan sailors have a better reaction than God's prophet, don't they? won't be the first time we see that and the only time we see that in the book. You see, Jonah says he fears God, but it doesn't stack up. Whereas these guys, they just get a glimpse of who they're dealing with in terms of the God of the Bible. And for them, suddenly, the real God is not someone you toy with or negotiate with or ignore or decide you know better. He's God. Unstoppably God. So it's right to, to fear him. We're going to keep seeing that with Jonah, that he talks the right game, but there's something wrong in his heart. And the first thing that's wrong is he seems to have lost a genuine fear of God. He still talks the talk, I fear the God who made the seas and the land, but no longer does his heart and life seem to match that. So, as I turn and conclude, let me ask us, 
Do, do I genuinely fear the one real God? Do you genuinely fear the one real God? Now, I realise talk of fearing God isn't that popular in Christian circles. I mean, we do tend to change the word to kind of respect or... Um, actually, NIV translates verse 9 as, as worship. I worship the God um, who made the seas. It sounds a bit more friendly. Um, but actually, the Bible does say even God's people should fear God, even Christians. So our focus groups and our core Bible study groups, we studied 1 Peter back in the autumn term, uh, and repeatedly Peter told Christians to fear God. Like this, chapter 1, verse 17 of Peter, live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear of God. Or chapter 2, verse 17, love the brotherhood of believers, fear God, honour the king. In fact, again and again, it seemed to be fear, Peter saying, fearing God is the thing that will keep you living as a Christian in this world that doesn't. Now, we need to be clear about what this means, because there is a sense, there's a very important sense in which Christians don't fear God. So we don't fear God's punishment or God's condemnation. As Sergei said up here, we are clothed in Jesus. We're united to Jesus. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So we don't fear God as a kind of, I don't know where I stand. I fear I might be guilty. Not at all. We're entirely safe in Jesus. God is our Father forever. It's not that kind of fear at all. But our Father is the creator of the heavens and the earth and the sea. Our Father is a consuming fire. Our Father is unstoppable. Once he decides something, it happens. He cannot be resisted, ultimately. He is capable of taking health or breath, of flooding Edinburgh in an instant. He will judge the world in the end. That's our Father. And when you do stop and think about just the sheer power at God's disposal, the wind, the waves, it is actually frightening. I could never win an arm wrestle with my Creator. And so it's right to ask the question as we close tonight, do I have Jonah's nominal fear or the sailor's genuine fear? To put it another way, for those of us who are Christian, who say that we follow the God of the Bible, that Jesus is our king, have we shrunk him to become a pocket-sized God? You know, God as an advisor rather than God as the king, the supreme ruler. I don't know about you, but I know that happens in my heart. There are various symptoms of that, I think. I think rebellion in life can be a symptom of that. There may be one or two here who you'd call yourself a Christian, but you know there's an area where you're not living God's way. You haven't turned around. I was speaking to someone recently who said they disagreed with the Bible on something, even though they could see that was what it said. And I thought to myself as I talked, I'm not as brave as you. As in, I don't know how you can't be afraid of ignoring God. There may be one or two who tonight need to turn back around and submit to the Creator. I think a far more common sign that we're not really fearing God or it's just become nominal is we're more scared of other people and what they think than God and what he thinks. I'm sure you can fill in the examples on that. But perhaps the most surprising th symptom 
of losing a fear of God is that we can start to have problems with grace. That is, we start to think we should have the right to tell God who he can save and who he can't save. I haven't got time tonight to explain that, but that's where Jonah's going. Jonah is a prophet who has problems with God's salvation and who God offers it to. And if we lose our fear of God, we might just begin to be like that. I was chatting to someone about this this week at a Bible study. Um, Why does God save some people? Why does he not save others? Uh, We looked at Romans 9, and the ultimate answer there is he's the creator. He's the creator. We can't tell him what to do. Now, wonderfully, he's a gracious and compassionate creator. And this is a book that will help us expand our view of how gracious and generous he is. But before we go there, we need to know who we're dealing with. The unstoppable creator, whom it's right to fear. Let me lead us in prayer. Our Father in heaven, maker of the seas and the land, the God of heaven, we praise you for your might, your power, your sovereign rule over all creation. And we pray that just because we don't see kind of immediate storms of judgment or discipline around us, we pray that you wouldn't help us, that you would help us not to think you're not powerful. Please help us not to shrink you into a pocket-sized God, but to worship and adore you and fear you as our mighty creator. And we thank you that we can call you Father with real confidence. In Jesus' name, amen.